Progressive, progressive discipline. Right. My verbal warning. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, if you're listening, make a note. <laughs> Put it in your file. There you go. Um, yeah. So um, the uh, <laughs> Lenny Power says TPLR should call the overtime hour uh, the hour or so the FCC won't allow you to hear. Um, that's That would be some good branding. So. Yeah. You know, we actually don't cuss that much, though. We don't. Um, it happens occasionally. Um, yeah, usually... I do try not to cuss, um, even during overtime, uh, just because I do want to try to keep it, you know, generally family-friendly and, and stuff like that, right. and, and mom-friendly, just in case uh, my mother ever listens to it. Right, your mom um, and them. You yeah. Know, keep, yeah, of course. So. But uh, occasionally, you know, the rants are free-flowing, and it just happens. Yeah, so um, we we did want to take a little bit here at the top of overtime to respond to some of the uh, to take a look at some of the stuff in the chat and and I think we're gonna mainly be generally responding to kind of the tenor of the conversation, uh, but we'll start with this specific conversation. Uh, having read her or this specific question, having read her policies, how would you compare her platform to Bernie's? The same, more progressive, less progressive? I would think probably less. Uh, a little bit uh, that that's the general vibe I get although not materially so um, you know the thing about the th- I, I would say it's very comparable I, I, I yes yeah, definitely comparable based on my recollection sure. of Bernie's platform from 2020 and you know being a little a little bit involved there um, and from what I've gathered from Marion's 2024 I, yeah I would say it's it's in the same ballpark it's very comparable I mean you might can find certain issues some some differences on particular issues but i would say it's it's very very comparable i mean and you know the fact that people like harvey jk are are working with marianne on that that platform and campaign you know i think speaks to the the general tenor the the general you know progressive vibe she's going for um yeah and you know the thing about that is that you know like you said the the platform is very very similar to Bernie's. There are things that may be different here and there, but but you know, not materially so. Like I said, it may be a little bit less progressive, but not materially so. I would say, the the thing is for me, you know, the the platform is great, and I'm probably gonna vote for her in the primary just because I do want to 
be able to in some small way voice my disappointment for the Biden administration um, in the Biden administration. And I think that, you know, like kind of like she said, giving more votes to an opposition candidate is is a way to do that. And and so that that's probably what I'm going to do. Um, but, you know, the thing that's that's concerning to me about about her candidacy, and this was kind of mentioned in the chat, is is, you know, the lack of a movement uh, behind her. Uh, whereas, you know, Bernie had, you know, there were some unions and there were some organizations that that was behind the Bernie campaign, um, although maybe not at the beginning. And, and so, you know, perhaps there there's still a chance for something to. Uh, to come out of the Marianne campaign or, or to to bolster it but uh, but you know I think that remains to be seen um, yeah yeah I mean my general take on it is do you want someone running with that kind of politics and that platform and my answer would be well yeah I, I do uh, I would rather there be someone running with that than not um, and that's what frustrates me so much in Alabama is is the lack of choice right? I'm lucky if there's even a Democrat to vote for. And if, you know, typically the only candidate is an extreme far right Republican. If you're lucky, maybe you have a Democrat who is basically a moderate conservative. But last year you were more more often uh, and more likely to see a libertarian Correct. <laughs> running against. Right. The and so I think it's important. <laughs> I am like I think most of our audience in that. Electoral politics is not like the be all end all for me. There's a reason why we're a union talk radio show and not a progressive politics talk radio show. Uh, I know the two overlap, but ultimately we believe the labor movement and more broadly, the organizing of the working class is the goal, right? Is the key to actual change in this country. Uh, That said, I would rather there be candidates running with policies I like, then there not be those candidates. And so uh, I'm glad that someone is running on, you know, basically Bernie's platform this year, since Bernie is not running. Uh, I have no illusions about, uh, you know, how the results are going to shake out more than likely. Uh, You know, I'm also interested in Cornell West. I'm a longtime reader of Cornell West. I've been a big fan of of his work. I'm not very familiar with the People's Party. You've told me some things, Jacob, that has me quite concerned, you know. Uh, so I'm a little sus on on the choice of the People's Party, if that was necessarily the right move. But again, it was absolutely not the right move. So I don't I, and understand I'll take why. Your word, and I'll yeah. take your word for that because I'm not informed enough to know one way or the other. But what I'll say is, I, you know, generally I've I've been a fan of Cornell's career. And again, I'm appreciative that there are people running who are trying to articulate some version of working class politics, uh, politics that is by and for working people. Um, You know, we can debate on the specifics on how well each candidate is doing that. Um, But we we absolutely need conversations about why are we the only developed country on Earth without paid sick leave and without guaranteed health care and you know, without guaranteed pre-K and why, you know, we need those conversations happening. And to the extent that people like Marianne Williamson or Cornell West running, it advances that. That's good. 
Uh, I'm not going to take a lot of time and attention and money from my personal life and devote it to the 2024 election. I can tell you that yeah. much. Yeah, this is probably the extent of of our involvement right. with the Marion I mean, campaign. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy to have conversations, you know, on the show uh, to to inform people so we can all have our you know decisions and and make our decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I'm more interested to the extent that I'm interested in electoral politics. I'm more interested in at the bottom up, you know, state and local. And someone mentioned in the chat that, you know, we need a third party in Alabama. You know, something like that is honestly more intriguing to me than than the presidential contest, because I think there's more opportunity to actually make a difference there uh, because it is starting local. And, uh, you know, I just. I don't know. I, I feel personally like I got a little more invested in Bernie's runs in 2016 and 2020 than I should have. And I knew better um, as someone who is a materialist and, you know, kind of approaches politics from that that perspective. I sort of knew better, but it was hard not to get get sucked in anyway. Um, I'm not sucked into the 2024 campaign by any means. And so, uh, again, I appreciate, you know, what Marianne is discussing. I think she has a lot of good things to say. Um, I understand people have their reservations about her. Um, I understand that specifically. I also understand just being reserved and kind of skeptical of electoral politics, period. And I think that's more so our camp. And that's why, you know, we're interested in it. We'll talk about it. We'll, uh, try to have the best informed decisions but ultimately we think building power in the working class organizing unions building community power that's really our our goal and how we're going to make things better it's not just electing people i think marianne's right that some some inside outside game is necessary right i mean if you're totally working outside you're you're sticking to nothing but union organizing and community organizing and you're never entering into the electoral arena, um, you know, you may be missing some opportunities there. But generally speaking, the problem in American politics is that we put way too much into the electoral side of things while abandoning labor organizing and community organizing. So, um, you know, that's kind of my general thoughts about it. Uh, I appreciate the diverse perspectives that people have had. you know, we've had people who were not happy we interviewed her. We've had people who were thrilled that we were interviewing her, you know. So I think it's it's just interesting, um, you know, to always hear from folks about what they have to say. And, um, you know, there's always some haters. So there's always folks who uh, will surprise you. So, um, yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, uh... But yeah, that's kind of our take. Uh, there was another question about where she stands on the Palestinian issue, uh, and, I'm and I'm sure, not, and I'm not sure uh, that and that may be a good one to try to dig around and see if she's she's got one. But uh, understand certainly will that that's a that's a big issue uh, for you. And and you said uh, I don't think she's that good when it comes to human rights for them, and and that may be the case. So uh, you know I, I'm not sure. I haven't seen, but but yeah, definitely and something was, I'd want to look into. I was interested in uh, foreign policy as well, and we didn't really have time just to get get into that but you know i I can just i'm going to say this part that i was going to mention had we gotten to it which is that you know one of the key powers of the presidency is in foreign policy and as someone committed to peace and internationalism and opposed to war and empire i'm disturbed by both political parties 
And I'm disturbed by their warmongering. I'm disturbed by their imperialism, their relationship to defense contractors and the military industrial complex that, you know, I know we're not really supposed to talk about. Um, both parties seem committed to adversarial relations, whether that's with China or Russia or both. Neither party seems serious about working with the international community to bring peace, whether that's in Ukraine or in the Middle East or, or elsewhere. Neither party wants to reckon with the consequences of American foreign policy over the years, whether that's U.S. sanctions or covert actions or the support of oligarchies or the support of Israeli apartheid, for example. You know, these policies have real consequences for real human beings. And unfortunately, we're not going to have a lot of good conversations in the presidential campaign about that, I don't believe. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly not from mainstream media. Uh, in mainstream politics. Yeah. Um, D.L. Sendero says, uh, I regret to say it, but in my honest opinion, running on the People's Party ticket will be his undoing regarding Cornell West. And I think that's kind of, as far as this race, I and that's really the thing that I don't understand, is I think that if he had run just as an independent or even in the Democratic primary, and I, and, and, you know, I, I, tend to, I tend to be kind of Libby on that. And, you know, I, I think that running in the Democratic Party maybe makes more sense typically than an independent run. But, you know, I like I like we've talked about, it's not something that I spend a lot of time on. Um, but um, well, I, I still I love Cornell. Uh, still love you know, Cornell. I still love Cornell. Um, I'm still going to listen to him talk and listen to what he has to say. Yeah. Um, and TSAL Collective said, the reason I like Wes is he believes every word he says, even if it feels trite or ugly in our culture. Him being misused as a cultural symbol won't hurt him, uh, but it will burn out the clock. Um, so, and, yeah, and, and, you know, points. regarding getting Cornell on the debate stage, I think that would be, a, that would be a very funny debate and I'd be very much interested in seeing it. So. Absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, if you want to switch gears here, uh, I believe Jesse is in the Zoom and ready for us. So uh, we can go ahead and get started there. Uh, let me get Jesse on the screen for us. Awesome. Jesse, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate you. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, last week we talked with a teacher organizer in Iowa City, uh, along with uh, Deborah from Zen Education Project. And we talked about the Teach Truth Day of Action that is happening today, June 10th. So if folks missed that conversation last week, definitely check it out. But Jesse, could you tell us what is the Teach Dr Truth Day of Action that's happening today? Yeah, it's an exciting day all across the country. Parents, students, teachers, community members, caregivers, mentors, counselors, Everybody who cares about education and and youth are rallying uh, from my hometown here in Seattle down to Miami uh, and everywhere in between. People are fed up with the attack on education, the attack on our youth, the attack on our teachers. You know, uh, almost every state in this country and many local school districts have passed bills that try to require educators to lie to students about structural racism, to say that it wasn't foundational to the United States, right? Even though right. our nation was built on a genocide of Native people and the enslavement of Africans, there are laws that say you can't call that structural racism now. 
And these laws are now applied to over half, to almost half of public school students in the United States. And it's really a scary moment we're in. And that's why we're fighting back today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we've seen that right here in Alabama. Thank goodness. The worst bill that we had that was called divisive concepts ban, uh, which is about what it sounds like. It died on the last day of the legislative session this week. So we're very happy about that. But, you know, uh, the, the sponsor of that bill actually said it was necessary because teachers were proselytizing and sexualizing children. And, you know, I think that's, yeah, that's the sort of outrageous rhetoric that's been attached to this. So, so Jesse, tell us a little bit about your involvement. What have you been doing with this Teach Truth Day of Action, uh, both locally and just in, in general? Yeah, well, I've been a teacher my whole career uh, from the time I was 20. And I have most recently taught at my alma mater, Garfield High School, in Seattle. I'm now working with the Zen Education Project, and we provide free downloadable people's history lessons to educators in every state. We have over 150,000 educators who have registered at our website, and these are educators that want to teach beyond the textbook, that know that the corporate textbooks that exist in this country far too often erase the contributions of black people, people of color, of women, of LGBTQ people. And we want to center those voices that have been marginalized. And so we have lessons to teach about every social movement we can and uh, really help students understand the power that youth have played in social movements throughout history so that they can be part of the struggles today uh, for a more just society. And I've helped both at the local level and, and the national level planning for this day of action. And I think today will be the largest one yet. You know, we had the first one in 2021, right as these bills were first being rolled out across the country. And, and so this is our third annual hashtag teach truth day of action. You can go to the Zen education project.org and find out where the rallies are in your city uh and in your location and and go join it today absolutely absolutely and you know i mentioned to you off air that i've i've been following your work for for years uh really since i was a student teacher i think and i first read about some of the stuff y'all were doing up in seattle with the uh uh the c s e e uh and your your reform caucus up there and uh long time fan of rethinking schools and Zen education projects. So uh, really, you know, to me, it seems fitting that you would be involved in this. It seems to kind of fit right in with your career. So uh, could you talk a little bit more just about like your journey in, in the movement? Uh, what, what led you up to this point? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I'm really pleased to hear that my, my mm -hmm. work's having that impact. And you know, I started teaching in Washington, D.C., and I think the fifth and sixth graders that I taught in D.C. really were teaching me. They were teaching me about the inequities in our society that has really propelled me to spend my life trying to transform the education system and the broader social structures that are creating such abhorrent inequality. Uh, you know, I taught 
at a school in Southeast DC. So I would drive by the White House, cross the Anacostia River and be in a neighborhood that has been completely forsaken by anyone with power or money. It was a school that was 100% segregated, all black children. <clears throat> and the, really the only services these children got, <clears throat> if you can call it services, was the police who would roam the halls with impunity. I saw a police officer jack a fourth grader up against the wall, screaming in his face for throwing paper. Uh, mm. You know, I, I had a hole in the ceiling of my classroom that I discovered when it rained. And the first project I ever assigned these students was to research somebody that they admired from history that had helped to create a better world and make a poster board. And we were set to present those posters on Monday and we came in after the weekend and there was a half inch standing water on the ground and the posters were all destroyed. And mm. I had to put an industrial sized garbage can under that hole and it, there it stood for three years, uh, collecting water. And, you know, I, I began teaching in 2001. So it was the same year of the 9-11 attacks. And so we actually saw the smoke rising from the Pentagon from my classroom window. Mm -hmm. And it was a terrifying day. But I got to tell you, what's even more terrifying was seeing the U.S., mobilize uh, untold fortune to go bomb people halfway across the world, uh, but couldn't fix the hole in the ceiling of my classroom. And, you know, that that experience, I think, really led me to to question the priorities of our country and to organize collectively with my colleagues uh, to to help create a more just education system. Yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you, sharing you sharing that. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, and something, and I, something wanted I wanted to, to ask about, about because, because I've been a rank-and-file rank and file teacher. teacher. I've been, I've been a, a field staffer, staffer for the Education, education Association, Association representing, representing teachers. teachers. And, now and now I'm just an I'm ally. Just an ally. I'm, a public I'm a public school parent. parent. Uh, but, but my wife, my is, a wife teacher, is a teacher. She's still in the, she's classroom. Still in the classroom. Of course, of course teachers, teachers are always going to be near and dear to my heart. So I guess the thing that I'm most about is your thoughts, Your thoughts when it comes, when it comes to, to rank and file, file educators, educators themselves, themselves organizing, organizing. Uh, and, and maybe maybe you know you know what is so what important, is so important about, about that particularly, particularly in this in moment, this moment of, of attacks that we're seeing, that we're seeing uh, politically, uh, politically on the on content the content that happens, that happens in, our in our classrooms, the professions, the professions of the people of the teaching, teaching in the classrooms, in the, classrooms, uh, the, funding uh, the funding and the resources, and the resources of the classroom. So we're seeing so these we're attacks, seeing attacks from multiple directions. directions and, and, you know, I was just wondering if you could talk more about, about you know, why, you know, why is it important, important that educators, educators themselves are organizing and getting active and involved in this process? Yeah, absolutely. I think educator unions are crucial to the well-being of education and the working class in general. And that's why they're so vilified by billionaires and the, the think tanks that they they fund. If if people want to do a deep dive on the history of educator unions in struggles for social justice, people should check out the book that I co-edited called Teachers Unions and Social Justice. And in the book, we really tell the story of the countless struggles throughout U.S. history and, and 
the growing movement today among rank and file educators to organize, to fully fund education in the world's richest country. We shouldn't have holes in the ceiling that just allow the elements uh, to destroy our kids' projects, right? And right. But this is a common uh, theme in American public schools. And the main obstacle to the destruction of public schools, uh, to the gutting of the funding is, is the teachers' unions. <laughs> and, you know, I think that there's work to be done to to reinforce those unions, to make them uh, more robust, to make them more oriented towards struggles for social justice. But without them, we're, we're, we're really just throwing our children to the wolves, the, uh, the billionaires who see uh, dollar signs where they should see children. And that's what the whole privatization movement around vouchers and charters uh, is about where they want to gut the funding from the public schools and and put put them into unaccountable private hands, uh, and the teachers unions are crucial to standing up against that, and that's why uh, they've they've been vilified. And I'll just reinforce how important they are today, while you know they're trying to outlaw the truth. <laughs> in education they are trying to ban black history in florida they did ban uh the ap african-american studies class in florida mm -hmm. it, in florida it's now a felony if you get caught with the wrong book in your classroom literally it's a five-year jail sentence and a five thousand dollar fine if a teacher gets caught with a book helping students understand racism uh or gender uh or transphobia right and, and we need organizations to help teachers collectively fight uh for the rights of teachers to teach students about their own culture and history and identities absolutely absolutely and i think that's the thing that i really want to see the teachers unions step up and, and really live up to the responsibilities there because as important as it, as it is to you know lobby for pay raises and lobby for better health insurance negotiate for that you know in in some states but here typically you're lobbying in Alabama we don't have collective bargaining agreements for our teachers uh but we do still have organizations of teachers and i think it's important that they not avoid this these difficult conversations um, and I think that's what I've observed in the South is that there is a reluctant a reluctance to have these conversations for fear of brushing up against, you know, Republican power or perhaps alienating white teachers uh, who may be more conservative politically. Uh, and I think that is a real, real mistake to do that. Uh, I think it's important that our unions be really engaged and, and vocal when it comes to matters of justice. And, and I think as you, you illustrated, right, it's impacting teachers' ability to do their job. To, they're risking a felony to do right by their kids, you know. And if, and if our unions aren't involved in that, I, I don't know what they're going to be involved with. So I really appreciate your leadership. No, thank you, man. And I'm heartened that uh, today's action has been robustly supported by 
the NEA and the AFT. Uh, and I think it's a really great sign that we are entering an era where everybody knows that basic forms uh, of democracy are under assault when teachers can't teach that slavery happened. And I'm not exaggerating here. I mean, I right. talked to a teacher named Greg Wickenkamp uh, from Iowa, and Greg was teaching the book Stamped, the young adult version that gives the history of racist ideas. And he was attacked by a state legislator for teaching the truth that structural racism has existed in this country and was tied to slavery. And he, when he faced that attack, he contacted his superintendent, right? He wanted to know if the school district would support him in teaching about slavery. And people should go Google this video. It's breathtaking to watch his conversation with the superintendent where he asked the superintendent point blank, can I teach that slavery is wrong? And the superintendent uh, saying, no, that's an opinion. And when we've reached a point in this country where the attack on anti-racist education is so intense that the superintendent of a school system can tell you that you can't teach that slavery is wrong, you know we are rapidly descending into a, a very scary situation uh, that more closely resembles McCarthyism. That's exactly that's exactly what was on my mind, that this is the Red Scare, uh, just a revival of the Red Scare. Maybe they're using some different terms now, but that's exactly what this is about. That's it. Yep. I mean, we need to look to history to understand the moment we're in, right? I mean, the Red Scare, where all they had to do was call you a communist to, to get you fired or blacklisted, is so important to understand right now because... Uh, all they have to do now is call you a critical race theorist, right? And push you out of the classroom. And and during the late 40s and 50s, thousands of teachers were fired all over the country who just wanted to teach about the labor movement or about the struggle for racial justice and were labeled communists and pushed out of the classroom. There were over 400 teachers in New York City alone fired during the Red Scare. And people should also know that the Red Scare had an overlapping lavender scare, which was the attack on LGBTQ plus people. And that was especially vicious on, on queer educators. And, you know, Florida in the 50s had the Johns Committee, which uh, investigated teachers prying into their personal lives to find out who was a homosexual and then firing scores of teachers and revoking their teaching certificates. And this is the exact strategy that they're <clears throat> reviving today in Florida and in states all across the country where they're attacking what they call gender ideology uh, and critical race theory. Uh, and and it's, it's really scary, the impact that it's having on our educators and, and on, our, on our most marginalized students. Uh, and and we, we need to learn this history. Educators need to learn the history of access to literacy in this country to understand the attack on anti-racist education today, right? Because, you know, my ancestors uh, were enslaved and it was illegal for them to be literate, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was the 
1739 Stono Rebellion in South Carolina occurred, uh, led by a man named Jemmy. He was an enslaved man who marched with a banner that read Liberty, and they picked up more and more enslaved African people who fought back against their captivity. And when they were captured and killed, the South Carolina authorities didn't just want to murder their bodies. They wanted to murder uh, the ability of any enslaved person to ever write that word liberty again. And so in, in 1740, the first anti-literacy laws were passed, making it a crime to be literate if you were Black. And those spread across the country so that uh, most of the South had severe penalties for learning to read or write if, if you were Black, and, you know, including death. And, you know... <laughs> We can see a link from the attacks on black literacy during the period of enslavement, the, the white supremacist movement during Reconstruction that burnt down over 600 black schools, uh, the attack on the freedom schools during the civil rights movement, and, and today's attack on anti-racist education. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you connecting those dots there and, and bringing that history together. Uh, because I, I couldn't agree more. It's so critical that the rank and file educators know this history and know these struggles and how they are connected uh, and, and put it in context. And I think that's why it is so important that educators are having these conversations and, and why, uh, you know, Zen Education Project doing this Teach Truth Day of Action is huge. And I'm really pleased to hear uh, more support from, you know, the more official labor corners uh, with NEA and AFT. And I think that's really important that they recognize the, these threats for what they are uh, and the ways in which they threaten the membership, uh, but not just the membership, but the communities as a whole. So, Jesse, I uh, really appreciate your leadership. I appreciate all you're doing. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to share with us this morning? Well, I guess I'd just end by by saying that uh, this idea that social justice educators got into teaching because they want to shame white kids is absolutely absurd. That's the main talking point of the right wing. And they say that critical race theory, which they use to, to label any kind of teaching that opposes racism, uh, mm -hmm. they, they say that that's just uh, a trick to 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 label and shame white white children. And you know, as an as an anti-racist educator, my whole life, my goal has been actually to empower white children to see that they can be part of struggles for social justice. And those those anti-racist struggles have been hidden from white children as well. They're often mm -hmm. missing from the textbook the examples of multiracial solidarity in struggles uh, for everybody's liberation. And we want white children to learn about the Grimke sisters who fought against slavery, John Brown, who gave his life to fight against slavery. We want them to learn about Howard Zinn, uh, who, joined, who was really active in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, supporting black students in, in the struggle to desegregate the South. You know, we, we want them to understand that there's an important place for them to, to be in the struggles today for black lives. And that's what really scares the right. They're not, they're, they know that we're not shaming white kids, but what's what really scares them is that we're empowering white kids to better understand our society, the structures of racism, 
and how they could be part of a struggle that would not only free uh, Black people, but free themselves. Because we know when all the world's resources are being used to oppress people, uh, they're being siphoned out of the public schools, and that's hurting white kids who go to public schools as well. And so that the potential for that multiracial solidarity was on display in the 2020 uprising all across the country, which was the largest uprising in U.S. history, and it included people of all colors. And that's what terrified the right wing, seeing that kind of solidarity and the building racial consciousness that existed. And that's what we're experiencing now is a vicious backlash to try to outlaw the discussion of how we build a better society and we aren't going to quit you know i made a promise to my ancestors that you know i would not ever lie to children about enslavement structural racism regardless of the consequences they can threaten us with jail they can threaten us with fines but we know that the truth is on our side and we won't lie to children Amen, brother. Amen. They fear the interracial people power that we can build to build a better world. And I, I think you're exactly right. So, Jesse, thanks again for joining us. Uh, best of luck with your day of action today in Seattle. Uh, really wishing you all the best up there. And I hope it's a big success across the country. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. All right, y'all. Search hashtag Teach Truth Day of Action. You can find out more about what's happening across the country. I believe there is a, an event happening in Montgomery. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything happening uh, more like in Nashville or Chattanooga area. I haven't checked the map in a few days. Uh, but definitely check check out Zen Education Project uh, and definitely follow Jesse Hagopian. Uh, he's definitely uh, a, an OG in the education movement. A uh, big fan of his work. So appreciate Zen Education Project for what they're doing. Uh, big fan of their lessons, big fan of the resources they provide. Uh, because as he said, it's to teach outside the textbook. It's to teach people people's history and really to empower young people. Uh, and that's scary for some folks in charge. Uh, when we start talking about empowering young people, and bridging racial divides and bridging other cultural divides and start uniting folks uh, in interracial solidarity. That's a scary thing uh, for folks in power. Um, but that's all the more reason for us to keep it up. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited uh, to share this with you. It is an interview with David Van Dusen, who is the president of the Vermont Labor Federation. Uh, very militant brother out there in Vermont who led a reform caucus, his slate one office. Uh, so he's been in office some time now as a reformer uh, and uh, is doing some really interesting things out there in Vermont that I it made me want to talk to him. I just wanted to check in with him because I'm seeing some of the interesting work that they're doing, uh, whether that's international solidarity work or back during the 2020 election. I know uh, David was very uh, forward thinking in terms of how to unions should be responding and, and was very uh, you know militant in how unions should be uh, dealing with our democratic society and, and trying to preserve democracy. So yeah, I had a good conversation with David and uh, look forward to sharing it with you guys.
All right, folks, Adam Keller here with the Valley Labor Report. I'm excited about our next guest, one of the leaders of the labor movement in this country and president of the Vermont State Labor Council, David Van Dusen, elected to offices, elected to office in uh, 2019 as part of the Progressive United Slate. He's a member of ASME Local 2413 in the Northeast Kingdom and serves on the Labor for Single Payer National Advisory Board and is a member of Labor Against Racism and Wars National Representative Assembly. David's also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and a past member of Anti-Racist Action. David, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Adam. Yeah, really appreciate it. Uh, and I've been seeing some of your work over the years as president. Uh, I know you have been quite vocal as a leader Really appreciate all you've done for the movement. And I just wanted to start with an introduction. If you could just tell us about your story, what got you started in the labor movement? What's been your journey, you know, since then? Sure. Well, first, let me say I'm uh, excited to be talking with our some of our union brothers and sisters today in the South. Uh, my family was from my dad's side of the family is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've lived in Jacksonville. I've lived in New Orleans. So it's absolute pleasure to, to kind of bring the conversation back home, so to speak. Absolutely. So speaking of how I got into labor, like many people, my dad was a union member. Uh, and he was an officer, elected to office within his union. Uh, something I didn't really think about much as a kid. It's just you went to the doctor when you were sick and that was taken care of, right? You know, mm. these basic things. But it was part of the fabric of growing up, the fabric of uh, part of my young existence as growing up working class. So joining a union, being a, a union, eventually becoming a union leader, leader is just something that was a natural evolution. Now, uh, I personally have, just like so many millions of other Americans, have gone through so many hardships and difficult times, uh, both in childhood and, and later in life. And uh, it makes sense that if we're going to change the world so that the working people that actually create all the wealth, the north, south, everywhere else, if we're going to actually get a fair shake, and if we're going to do better than our generations before us, the vehicle for that kind of change is when we come together and form a union. So we have a collective voice, a collective power uh, to fight against those that have a vested interest in keeping us down. So to me, if you have any interest whatsoever of, or any belief that that we as the working class deserve not to worry about can I afford groceries and to deserve not to worry about whether or not you could uh, have childcare for your for for your kids. If, if we're not going to worry about these basic things and if we're going to work every day working 40 or 60 hours a week, we shouldn't have to worry about those things. And the way to make that change is through the labor movement, through unions, through forming a union through having a collective voice uh, for yourself, your coworkers, and the working class. Amen, brother. Uh, I really appreciate your comments there because ultimately I think the greatest force for democracy and for progress in this country is when working people come together collectively uh, as a movement. And so I really, you know, I love to hear it from uh, someone who is a president of a state council. And I love to hear you talk that way. And I really appreciate that. And you know, on that subject, I just wanted you to talk about your your experience as president of the Vermont State Labor Council. Uh, talk to us about some of your goals and, you know, what are you proud to have accomplished so far? You got to understand that 
the experience of the Vermont AFL-CIO. First, you got to understand Vermont beyond uh, whatever the stereotype might be in other places in the country. We are the most rural state in the country, demographically. Mm. We are basically one giant forest placed on top of a mountain range. So aesthetically, it doesn't look all that much different, although it's colder than, say, West Virginia. And uh, we are a working class society. And we are actually very libertarian when it comes to things like um, uh, the right to own a gun. I don't think there's a state in this country, uh, the whole country, uh, that is more lax on such things than Vermont. And yet we have the lowest rate of violent crime and murders in the whole country as well, because we still practice a very communal, uh, direct version of democracy through our town meeting system. We know our neighbors. We know the people down the street. So in some ways we're blessed and in some ways we're challenged. But when we inherited, when we ran for office, the United Slate in 2019, our state labor council was close to dead. Like, I'm just gonna be honest with you. The convention before there was like 20 something delegates present to represent you know, over 10,000 workers. So wow. just to get that in perspective, that's about as close as dead as you could get. So we ran on a radical, when I say radical, I'm talking about like a working class left thing, which is very different than a liberal agenda. We ran on our template program, our little green book as our platform. And some of the things that we said is things got to change and the guys change now. We need to engage the ranking file. We need to build real democracy within the labor, within the AFL-CIO, within our state labor council to get folks invested in what we're doing, right? To feel a sense of ownership over it. And instead of sinking, throwing good money after bad and sending a bunch of money uh, to be uh, folks to be lobbyists in our state house, which for years got us nowhere, we took that money out of that. And we said, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to put that money towards organizing, like supporting our affiliates and not only new organizing, organizing new shops, bringing them into labor movement, but also internal organizing for the affiliated unions we already have to make them stronger and more member driven. And that's exactly uh, what we did. Now, winning that election, uh, and we almost swept every race. I think we won every contest uh, in that internal election except for one. And uh, in order to do that, we had to build a huge coalition of the building trades, of college professors, of municipal employees, you know, laborers, you name it, we had to have them in there. So that was a good six month, that was a grassroots effort. And emerging out of that, we took our platform and by unanimous vote of the executive board, we made that the platform of the AFL-CIO, of the Vermont AFL-CIO. Since that time, we have become one of the only state labor councils in the country that is in fact growing on a consistent basis. We are organizing new shops across our mountains uh, every month, it seems like we have something new growing. And we have real organizers on the ground to help uh, our affiliates become stronger and help them to organize more workers into the movement. If I could pick one priority, it would be organizing, right? Because until we get to the point where the politicians fear us, until we grow big enough and we're organized strong enough, it doesn't matter what party's in power. And anybody tells you that the Democrats are your friends or the Republicans are your friends, they're lying to you, right? It's been a long time since anybody from either of those parties have been our friends. They're the friends of the corporations. They're the, the ones who get the same money from the same billionaires, regardless if they have a D or an R next to their name. So what we need to do is not spend all of our time and money and resources and hitching our wagon to a party or hitching our wagon to 
suits and ties in Washington or in our state capital. We need to build our own power and we need to grow as a labor movement. And once we do that, then we will instill fear if we're willing to use that power and be active and not be afraid of strikes and direct action. Then we could use that to build our power and make them fear us. And when they fear us, that's when we're going to start seeing progress in these state capitals in Washington, D.C. That's what happened in the 1930s when there were hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the street. There was work stoppages across this country. And that's when we got some good, damn good things, right, that we're still, working class is still benefiting from. But we're not going to build power by the inside game. We're going to build power by building working class unity and, and growing our ranks and being organized. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, you know, again, I love to hear that coming from leadership because I think, you know, you're speaking to, there has been some atrophy, I think, in our movement over the years. And there has been uh, practices that we've relied on that have not been effective, whether it's just dumping money into your democratic campaigns or, uh, you know, the, the lobbying uh, inside state capitals, despite being so outnumbered. You know, and, and that's cer certainly something we can relate to here in Alabama, where, you know, Republicans hold a super majority and Democrats, where they even exist, are not, you know, exactly champions of labor, uh, no, to not. put it mildly, you know, but, so. Put it very mildly, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, uh, and, and Alabama, we're outnumbered significantly. Our density is, of course, lower than in Vermont. Uh, but ultimately, whether you're in Vermont or Alabama, the name of the game is growth, you know, addition and multiplication, uh, because like you said, ultimately our progress is going to hinge on the leverage we have, uh, which comes from our strength, you know, and our growth. And I love that you mentioned the internal organizing, because we do have to get our own houses in order uh, if we're going to be growing, right? And I think that's something that, uh, you know, can be lost in conversation, right? Everyone wants to get new shops. Everyone wants to, to show growth and add new numbers, but uh, you got to take care of the folks you got and you got to make sure they're actually engaged and, you know, the strength is coming from the bottom up. Uh, so I really, you know, really appreciate your comments there. And, and I, I'm very interested uh, in what's been going on in Vermont and, you know, the idea that a reform caucus has actually won and has a platform. Uh, yeah. I got to say, that's really, really cool and not something that I, I can particularly relate to down in Alabama, honestly. Uh, Fair enough. Fair enough. But we didn't just win an election. We've won now three elections in a row, you know, hands down, like just just absolutely killed it. Three elections in a row. We have a new election coming up, internal election in September. Uh, I'm very optimistic about that, too. That said, look, when you said the Democrats aren't our friends. And you said you got two thirds Republicans down there. Now, here's the thing. If you're a working class person, neither of those parties, you know, neither of those parties represent us. Let's not kid ourselves. Right. They find cultural issues to fight over to pretend that there's foundational differences. Now, I'll grant you this. And the National Republican Party over the last few years, has become increasingly what I'm concerned as neo-fascist, right? That, that is a new direction. The traditional Republican Party is a very different beast entirely. But those, but the Democrats, but, and I'm happy to talk about the Republicans, but the Democrats, if you wanna see where they stand when push comes to shove, look no further than the crappy deal uh, that Washington DC pushed down throat of the rail workers uh, this winter. Rail workers in this country, in unions, 
They get paid a good wage, zero sick days. Can you imagine having zero sick days, right? Zero. In Vermont, a few years back, we passed a law saying everybody has to at least have a right to five sick days a year. Everybody. Union, non-union, every single person. Man, man and woman. But those folks have zero sick days. And the Democratic Party lined up to shove down their throats and mandate that they're going to eat this bad deal and live with it for the next several years. And they took away their right to strike. And Joe Biden likes to get up in front of the TV cameras and say he's the most pro-union president ever. Well, I got news for you. If that's the pro, most pro-union president ever, when it takes the rights of thousands and thousands of rail workers uh, to strike away from them and shoves down a deal with zero sick days built in, well, then we're in real trouble. And that's why I say it's a, it's a waste of energy, it's a waste of time, and frankly, it's divisive for us to continue down this misguided road of getting behind Democrats just because they're not Republicans, right? But the Republicans are the enemy too. There has never been a time in history when working class people, people that work with their hands, right? When they are the friends and they are the allies and we have something in common with billionaires. I don't care what it is that you do at the end of the day when you go home, right? But you got nothing in common with the billionaire class, nothing. Right. And all they're trying to do is fool you and trick you and divide you so you don't figure out that shit, man, we could build our own power on our own, right? As a working class. And then we, not somebody else, not some high horse liberal somewhere, right? Disconnected uh, from the working class, but we ourselves could define our, decide our own fate. And we could decide what our agenda is. And that's part of what labor needs to do by building democracy within the labor movement. So it's actual rank and file folks blue collar, white collar workers who define what our priorities are and not have them dictated to us from some person or entity or so-called leader or what have you from above. And that's what's gonna get people active. That's what's gonna get them involved because they're gonna feel ownership over those decisions. They're gonna say, we're doing this because we decide this together. And then they're more likely to stand with you like a brother and sister to fight to see it through and, and, and win. But I can't say it enough. The Republicans and Democrats will never do the right thing until we make them fear us. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, I, I'm, there's a couple of things you brought up there that I really uh, appreciated. And one of them is that, you know, democracy has muscles that we have to exercise. And so if we don't even have democracy within our own unions, how can we expect to, you know, build a more democratic society outside of them? And so I think that's really, really important. Uh, but as you spoke to, you know, the Democrats proclaim themselves to be friends of labor uh, until, mm -hmm. until it's actually time to be a friend, right? Until it's time right. to show up. Uh, it's one thing to say you support right, uh, workers' rights to join a union, uh, but what happens when there's union busting? Where are you? Uh, just like, right. you know, you can support the right to strike and well, except right terms and conditions apply, except uh, when it matters, except when it matters. And, you know, down here in Alabama, we had a uh, historic coal strike. Coal miners with the UMWA were on strike for nearly two years down in Brookwood, Alabama, and not a damn soul from the White House uh, or the National Democratic Party bothered to say anything. I believe your senator, Bernie Sanders, was the only one out of all of them to mention this strike, uh, to try to lift a finger to help these brothers and sisters who were fight, right. fighting, you know, 
finance capital at its worst. And well, keep in mind, keep in mind, Brother Sanders uh, is not a member of the Democratic Party, right? Right. Now, he has been a friend of ours for decades, a solid friend. He, there's not a union member in the 13,500 union members in the AFL state of Vermont. That I don't think there's been one of them that's ever gone on strike that hasn't at some point walked the picket line with Bernie Sanders shoulder to shoulder. And we were in contact with his office during um, the betrayal of the Democratic Party to our rail workers. And he was fighting like hell on the Senate floor to get a better deal for him. But he is far and few between, mm -hmm. you know, 99% of all those other people up there, they could give a rat's ass because at the end of the day, what they care about is those owners of those railroads. And you could extrapolate that to just about anything else. Now, right. you remember in the last election, in every election, they promised us the world and they don't do anything, you know, and the Republicans do that too. You know, uh, Donald Trump, uh, we call we call folks down in New York up here, we call them flatlanders. I don't know what your term is, Yankee or something like that. But, you know, he's a, he's a flatlander, uh, New Yorker, billionaire, who's got nothing in common with us. You know, the guy's a con man. He said he's gonna make things great for working people. He seated a bunch of corporate assholes uh, on the, National Labor Relations Board that did horrible rulings against working people. Uh, his Supreme Court um, folks that he appointed took away uh, union dues as a condition of employment for public sector workers. And he actively tried to take the voluntary right, voluntary of home health care providers across this country from paying any union dues at all, right? Uh, so, so, so that is one side of the betrayal. And the other side of the betrayal is, is the Democrats, when Obama and all the Democrats were in power, they said they were gonna give us the Employee Free Choice, uh, Free Choice Act, basically more democratic free way to join or start a union. That went nowhere for the Democrats in control of all branches in government. And this time around, Joe Biden and all of his buddies who were running for office said they were gonna deliver on the PRO Act, which would be a far reaching, very good piece of legislation that would empower unions and working class people to get a better deal in life. And that went exactly nowhere too, because there's always gonna be villains and there's always gonna be foils who are bought off by the corporate interests from within that party and the Republicans mm -hmm. to make sure that doesn't happen. But if they get scared of us, if they think that the only other option is something much more scary than uh, some folks being angry, you know, that's when they're going to start to make movements. And I think we also uh, should consider the notion of starting another party, national party. I was going to ask you about that, that actually. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That wasn't on my list, but I, I'm, you know, and, and I should provide you some context in terms of Alabama. Like I mentioned, it's, it's dominated by the Republican Party. The Alabama Democratic Party is semi non-existent. I mean, it is not really it is not a functional, viable legitimate political party and that's before you even get into the actual content of their policies yeah. which is not pro-worker uh and so we're kind of you know down here a lot of activists are having these conversations like should we start a new labor party in alabama where do we go what do you know how do we proceed with a coalition that can actually yeah. you know build political progress for working people i think the last time i saw uh a an aspect of a Southern Democratic Party that that seemed of interest, and, and I'm sure there's a downside to it too. But I find Huey Long down Louisiana to be a fascinating uh, historical figure right. that did some good for the folks down Louisiana, no doubt about it, especially to school children. But 
if you have a broken party that does not represent your interests and there isn't a functioning infrastructure in Alabama, why bother? Why put the energy into building a thing that already time and time again for seven years has betrayed you? I would question the sanity of such a move. And I would suggest that looking at uh, building a new labor third party option might be something to consider. Here in Vermont, we're one of the only states in the country that does have a real third party. Lieutenant Governor is part of the Progressive Party. There's a caucus in the state house um, with senators and, and uh, state reps from the Progressive Party. And they're, they're essentially working class left party, they're pro-union party. And we've endorsed them, the Vermont AFL-CIO in several election cycles now, they're full slate. And we've gotten behind them. That started when Bernie Sanders was mayor of Burlington, which is our biggest city with about 39,000 people in it today. And that was a coalition that came out of that city and then went statewide. I think it would be worth taking a look, take a gander of what's happened up here, do a little research uh, for folks in Alabama or in the South and, and see what the Progressive Party was able to build, making real inroads, I might add, with farmers too, because of a lot of farmer organizing with the family farms getting screwed. You know, they're in the same position as workers as far mm -hmm. as the big interest versus the, the small guy. Um, but I, I would also, remind folks though that I think it's important to engage in electoral politics because electoral politics matters but I also don't think one should make a fetish of it I right. think the most important thing is building your own power base and your own power that's independent of all political parties and not simply uh, putting money into PACs and uh, uh, knocking on doors over a candidate because candidates come and gone working class power can be forever Amen. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And uh, it's very, very relevant to the conversations that we're having down here. And uh, yes, we absolutely will be doing some more research on, on what's happening in Vermont in terms of the Progressive Party and, and third party efforts there. And uh, sort of along that line, you know, we're definitely interested in what other state federations are doing, what other labor councils are doing, you know, what we can learn as activists and organizers from what mm -hmm. folks across the country are doing. And as y'all mentioned with Vermont, uh, you do have a stronger union movement. Uh, you have cities like Burlington that have implemented a variety of progressive policies. You know, the state legislature has some progressive policies, certainly comparative to Alabama. And you mentioned the town meetings and this like strong bottom-up democratic culture that you have in Vermont. Uh, so, you know, was there anything else you've mentioned, you've already given us some stuff to chew on, honestly, but was there anything else you think maybe in terms of accomplishments or practices of the labor movement in Vermont that we might want to know about down here in the South? Well, shit, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it depends where you are in the South. I mean, like sure. I said early on, we're we're very rural up here. Our biggest city is 39,000 people. I'd say 80% of our roads are dirt roads. You know, I'd say half the folks are driving trucks and, uh, are, you know, there's tens of thousands of hunters here. So demographically, right. we're a little different than some of the big states, like say New York or California or stuff like that. But our experience up here is uh, if you really make a space for working people to have a voice and not just feel like they're being talked at, mm -hmm. right? They're being talked with, then folks will show up. You know, our last several conventions, uh, we've passed measures that more than double the amount of delegates each affiliate uh, gets. And when we've increased the threshold to make it harder to move away from a participatory democracy model on the floor, 
versus like a weighted voting thing. It's getting a little weeds a little bit, but we've taken every step we could in making our minutes and our, our uh, statements very public. Uh, we've taken every step we could to involve folks, right? And ask what they think and get them involved in making their vote matter. And that's, that's, had, that's had a big impact. We just had a strike up here with uh, maintenance workers and what have you at this little college. They were out on strike for three, maybe a little more than that weeks. And there were workers from unions all over coming up to walk their picket line and support them. And they not only won uh, the fair uh, raises they were looking for, but they also made it so in their contract, there's no ma management rights clause, which wow. if you're in the union world, that's a really big deal. That right? is a really big deal. Yeah, so they won their strike, but you can't be afraid to take action and do it, you know. And and if you got two devils, uh, a devil and an angel on your shoulder, uh, it's you know it's it's not wise to listen to the voice all the time that says we got to make a deal. Sometimes you don't have to make a deal. Sometimes you got to fight. But we've stood up for our principles in a smart way. We've thought um, we we've worked really hard uh, to be, to move things in a good working class left direction, but at the same time, not to be too far out ahead of the rank and file, right? Because mm -hmm. the rank and file is the one that's got to really define where we're going to put the priorities. So if you do that, if you stay relevant, if you take your money out of lobbying, right? Because there's very little that you're going to get out of lobbying. I can tell you that right now, at best, you're going to beat, you know, down South, I'm going to guess the best you're going to do is you're going to beat a few bad things from happening. Right. Right. That's different than winning good things. Right. And so if you can't win because the deck is stacked on the political level, then we got to change uh, the deck entirely. And you do that by putting resources and organizers and time into the nuts and bolts of organizing. And then once they're in the union, it's that's not good enough either. Then you have to work hard to really get down to the grassroots, right? To really internally organize so it's not just a group of folks that come together every three, four years to bargain a contract, but folks that are regularly meeting and have uh, union effective good union stewards and who are talking about the issues of the day. And that then needs to come back to the leadership. It needs to be a two-way street. Right. So stick to your principles, organize, but be practical and, and don't get all caught up in the electoral politics stuff. Right, right. And you know, you're, you're talking about building power from the bottom up and you're also talking about the, you know, real expressions of solidarity that people can practice and live and grow from. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one thing that I know about you is that you are an internationalist to mm -hmm. kind of switch gears a little bit. You know, I know uh, you recently held an event with some Kurdish unions and I'm just interested. You could tell us, you know, tell us a little bit about that event, but also more broadly, you know, why is it important for unions to have international perspectives and that international solidarity? Because frankly, it's not something I see a ton of in our movement. Uh, so that really stood out to me uh, that you have that perspective. Well, let's put it this way, right? Exxon Mobil, um, you know, Amazon, uh, all the car companies, you know, these folks, these are international corporations. Mm -hmm. They don't just live in the United States. And so when they're um, building their wealth, building their, their version of power, and they're building their influence, it's not just in Vermont or Alabama or Louisiana, right? They're building that across the globe. And the way that they often screw us or seek to screw us is they'll play one group of working class people in one country off another. So our manufacturing jobs, 
right, under the Democratic uh, leadership of Bill Clinton, right, they did screw us with NAFTA and all these um, terrible free trade agreements. But when that happened, what ha the jobs went to Mexico, right? And then down in Mexico where the unions are weak, and at the time, it's starting to change, but at the time where essentially government unions uh, mm -hmm. weren't independent voices of labor, they were able to pay pennies on the dollar for the same labor down there they would up here. And as long as they could do that by moving jobs via to Asia or, or, or somewhere else, and they could just move them around to wherever it's cheapest, then, then your victories are to be made asunder, right? Your victories, you could win a great contract one year and then 10,000 jobs go overseas. So if we're gonna beat capital, if we're gonna beat the billionaires, if we're gonna beat the, the corporations, which we will, we're only gonna do that as an international working class, right? So that means if I'm a trade unionist here in Vermont, not only do I gotta reach my hand down to Alabama and the South and Tennessee and Florida, right? To build solidarity among our states, but that means we also have to reach our hand out to working class people that are struggling just like we are to pay for a decent standard of living for their families in other places in the world. And we have to start to think in terms of global contracts. You know, it's not just good enough that we have, we strive towards a livable wage in one place in the United States or in Europe, where it may be. We need to strive for that on a global scale so that the corporations, the capitalists can't just run from the cheapest labor pool to the next cheapest labor pool. Right. So that's why international solidarity is absolutely uh, crucial in the long term. Because our fight is not just a state fight. It's not just a national fight. It's an international uh, struggle to change the very foundation of what's fair and what's not fair, who gets a good deal, who doesn't. Right. And this all for me is grounded in working class and working class solidarity. So that's why we do take interest in Vermont in the international uh, politics. And that's why I think all uh, good labor uh, movements and unions should. Absolutely. Was there anything that really stood out about the uh, Kurdish unions when you talked to them recently? Well, goddamn, a lot of people aren't going to know this because, look, Syria, they're in northeast part of Syria. It's not Europe. It's not North America. Mm -hmm. If this shit was going down in North America or Europe, it'd be the front page of the newspaper every day. What do you know about Syria? You know, there's some guy who's uh, an asshole who's in charge over there, right? Everyone knows that. And then there's some crazy um, fundamentalists trying to kill everybody, right? That's kind of what people know. It's so much more than that. A third of the country, give or take, um, the folks rose up. The majority Kurds, right? But it's also Arabs and, and other folks there too. They rose up with guns, drove out ISIS, drove out those, those, those wingnuts, right? That are, they're frankly fucking dangerous, drove them out. Nobody did it for them. They drove them out, right? And in its place, in the place of this terrible ideology, or for that matter, the, the quasi dictatorship under Assad, they started to uh, to work into work a new society based on direct participatory democracy secular you know it's not religious everybody's included equal rights for women all this shit so can you imagine in the heart of the middle east right now there's a group of folks 
with rifles in their hand, fighting day and night now against the Turks. The Turks, which are part of NATO, NATO invaded the northern part of the country. And these folks are fighting for a direct participatory democracy, which is, is not like a greatly empowered Vermont town meeting system of government. And the unions there are a central partner, the labor unions, in building this democracy and being able to define uh, how they make economic transitions, right, into a more sustainable, more bottom-up, more, more working-class driven economy. This is absolutely incredible. So this is like, this is on par with like the Spanish Civil War or the Paris Commune of 1871. This is one of the most, this is maybe the most far-reaching uh, revolutionary situation in the world in the last 50 years. And, and I think it behooves labor to lend solidarity. Uh, the unions out there reached out to us through a third party looking to build contacts with American labor unions. We were happy to do our part by uh, jointly hosting a panel discussion. We joined a lot of uh, labor folks from around the United States, their leaders, uh, to hear their story and hear the struggle they're going through every now, right now, including uh, bombardments and occupations uh, from the right-wing Turkish government. So we're helping to get the word out. Uh, we've already, the labor movement in Vermont some years ago, we were proud to sponsor a returning American volunteer who fought in their uh, YPG, in their military. For these ideals, we got him a job when he came back with the IBW, the electricians union, gave him a place to live, uh, paid his way for three months till he got settled in. And we have an ongoing commitment that any American who returns after fighting the good fight over there, we're happy to hook them up, do our best to hook them up with a good union job and support them when they get back. Hell yeah. I, I love that. I love the international solidarity. I love the the necessity that we have to learn from one another and learn from each other's struggles, uh, learn from each other's successes and what are other people doing that's working uh, in sometimes very different conditions. But at the end of the day, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we're all in this struggle together. Capital is internationalist. Labor has to be internationalist. Uh, and so I really applaud you and the Vermont uh, AFL-CIO for what y'all are doing on that, because, you know, for me personally, I was politicized really in reaction to the Iraq war as, as a millennial, like a lot of millennials, that's what really got me involved in politics was, was the war. Uh, and so, you know, as I've gotten more into labor, I see that, you know, a principled anti-war position or, you know, a principled internationalist position is not always that common. And so, yeah, I, I just, again, I really applaud you for what you're doing there and uh, definitely in, look forward to checking out uh, more information there with the Kurdish unions. And I think it's fantastic. Uh, and my last question I have for you is just, you know, as a labor leader, I'm really curious, what are you keeping your eye on uh, as we go throughout the rest of 2023, uh, what would be, you know, in terms of labor news and developments, is there anything in particular that you're really kind of looking at? Well, I think we, we really need as a labor movement across the country, we really need to start making more progress. Progress is made, but more in the giant um, tech related companies. Mm. Uh, we, we've seen the, the one warehouse, of course, in uh, New York City unionized for Amazon. Uh, there's other attempts underway in different parts of the country. Uh, I think that that is crucial that we do a good job there. I believe some Teamsters out West just organized some of the drivers as well. 
uh, I'm happy about uh, the retail end of things. Right? There's there's millions of retail workers who get a shitty deal all across the nation. And so when you see hundreds of Starbucks organizing, I think that's great. Right. We just organized our first um, uh, Ben and Jerry's, the flagship uh, shop. I saw that. That's awesome. So I'm hoping that catches on too. Because for too long, those huge corporations that make so much money, right? They have been just uh, neglecting their workers and their workers make um, pennies and it's just not right. So those breaking into those industries, breaking into um, perhaps more of the side of the electric cars too. I'd like to see Tesla unionize. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. But realistically, we're, it's not going to happen magically. The, the way we have to, to, to do this is we have to decide what's really important as a labor movement at the state labor council level and at the national AFL-CIO level. And we got to make hard choices and say, look, what are we getting for the millions and millions we're sinking into these elections, right? And these and this lobbying efforts. And if the answer is very little or nothing, which frankly it is, then we got to make the hard decision to take those millions of dollars out of that. And we got to uh, put it into organizing and frankly, have organizers deployed either by the national AFL-CIO or the state labor councils uh, in every state, in every corner of every state, because, yeah. you know, it, it's, there's no magic wand here. There's no switch. We flip and then we win. We win by hard work and hard work means resources to organize. Amen, brother. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, David, was there anything else you wanted to say, you know, before I let you go? Well, I know you got listeners down in New Orleans, so I would love for I someone do. to tell me if um, if the Abbey on Decatur Street sells the best jukebox in that city. That's <laughs> the main question I have. So somebody could email me, uh, you know, look up the Vermont AFL-CIO on the internet and just let me know if the Stooges is still on there. That, that would be good to know. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, David, I really, really appreciate your time. And more importantly, I appreciate your leadership. I Thank really you. do. I appreciate your leadership and, and being an outspoken advocate uh, and sticking true to your principles. And I, I, you know, hope to see many, many more folks uh, with that kind of style uh, excel into leadership. So, you know, thanks again for your time and thanks for all you're doing for the movement. Solid here, brother. Appreciate you. All right, folks, with that interview wrapping up, we are going to go ahead and roll out. We appreciate your time. Just one more reminder that uh, Shop, Talk, Shop Talk this week is going to be at 10.30 a.m. Central Time on YouTube and Facebook instead of the usual 9.30 because of scheduling conflicts. We appreciate your patience and understanding with us there. Yeah, and I have a great guest planned. Uh, it's going to be a really good conversation, I think. Um, a little bit of training, a little bit of history, a little bit of both. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I really enjoyed that interview with David. That was great. I um, thought so, too. I could yeah. have talked with David for a long time, and, um, you know, I've been seeing what he's what he's doing, and, uh, you know, I, I even see some of his stuff on Facebook from various labor movement groups I'm, mm -hmm. I'm part of, and, and David is just always active. He's a real militant leader. Uh, you know, he's no bullshit just straight up guy uh you can probably see why we had to play it in overtime instead of the main yeah. show <laughs> but um yeah i really enjoyed the interview enjoy his leadership and and uh so definitely y'all stay tuned with what's happening in vermont uh and um 
Also wanted to mention before we get off the air here that I was uh, on America's Workforce Radio this week, uh, appeared on Wednesday morning, I believe it was. Uh, I was a an emergency guest, so it uh, took me a little bit by surprise. I wasn't totally uh, as super prepared as maybe I would like to have been, but uh, give it a listen and you let me know how it turned out. I think it turned out pretty well, actually. I always enjoy going on America's Workforce. Uh, Jacob's been on a few times. Uh, Ed Flash Ferentz has been on our show before. Uh, they do a daily union talk radio show five days a week um, up in Ohio. And uh, so it's it's a great program. America's Workforce Radio. Check that out. Uh, and yeah, we're getting some good good feedback on the interview with David. Uh, Lenny says he wants to move to Vermont and work with that dude. Uh, same, brother. I really, I felt the same way. Like, hey, um, you got a spot for me up there. Sign me up. Let me join the army there with uh, with David because he he was a he's a real go getter. Uh, and Vex, thank you for your kind comments and for your super chat as well. Really appreciate that. Uh, I agree that we had three great guests today. Um, uh, I am a big fan of Jesse Hagopian. If you couldn't tell from the interview, I, I've really been following his work for a long time since I was a youngin, and so it, it was really cool to get to speak with him. And I look forward to seeing what the uh, Teach Truth Day of Action, you know, how that pans out this weekend. Was glad to hear NEA and AFT are supporting it this year. Uh, you know, glad to see they're actually engaged in this because they need to be. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned having followed Jesse Hagopian, a uh, definitely um, uh, a, a a motivation that I have for the show that I don't talk about very much is that I just get to uh, I have reason to ask people that I think are interesting to talk to me. <laughs> absolutely. And that's that was the interview with David. It wasn't yeah. that, you know, something happened to Vermont, mm-hmm. but like necessarily, you know, urged me to do it. It's just. I've been following his work. I've seen that he he does good work. He's a cool guy, and I, was, I thought it'd be interesting to talk with him. And and I'm glad y'all felt the same way. And that's kind of uh, our approach. Sometimes it's news based. Uh, sometimes it's just cool people we've been meaning to reach out to. Um, we do have quite a few uh, folks on a. We've got a whole spreadsheet of folks to talk to this this you know next few months over the summer. Uh, we've got some really cool people who've expressed interest in coming on the program. If you know someone that you would like us to talk to, always you know feel free to hit us up and let us know. Uh, we appreciate the recommendations. And also feel free to reach out to that person and be like, hey, you should go on the Valley Labor Report. Uh, that always helps. Uh, so yeah, we, uh, we've got a great shop talk planned uh, this upcoming week uh, with Bill Barry, a longtime organizer, going to do some training and some history. Uh, next weekend, we are working on a special guest. I'm not 100% sure if she'll be here, but uh, it'll be a great one if she is. And uh, yeah, some other great guests coming down the pike. So appreciate everyone who has supported us, everyone who tunes in, and uh, appreciate all your feedback. Uh, with that, we will see you next week. Solidarity, y'all.